Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. boys and girls welcome to two footed podcast today is tuesday the 21st of september we're brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor liberty shield liberty shield is a vpn provider a virtual privacy network allows you to go online change your location access things you're geo-blocked from while also keeping your data safe check out libertyshield.com use the code eplvpn to get 20 percent off at checkout we're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And do remember to check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find by downloading the Etsy app and searching EPL Index or Anfield Index. You'll also find them on their own websites, but the Etsy app is nice and easy to, to navigate. Rightio, folks. Okay, um couple of things I want to get through today, starting off with the big news that's breaking imminent. DAZN, the streaming service owned by billionaire Sir Leonard Plavatnik, is in advanced talks to buy BT's sports business. So BT wants to get out of sports broadcasting and focus on expanding its 5G and full fiber networks and developing new services the zone basically wants the premier league and the champions league rights so at the moment advanced talks the financial times are reporting that this is a deal that could get done within the month this would be massive absolutely massive when you look at some of the coverage the zone has they are global obviously they're in Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Spain, Japan, Canada, the USA, and Brazil. They cover an incredibly wide range of sports. From football, the Premier League and Champions League in certain countries, and the Europa League. They've got American football rights in many countries. Baseball rights, basketball rights, bowling, combat sports, cycling, darts. Whatever you want, they have. They've obviously got Canelo Alvarez signed, biggest name in boxing right now. He's signed to them and they pay him an obscene amount of money. But they're a very aggressive company and they've been very aggressive at grabbing up TV rights in the eight or nine different countries that they're in. The move to 
take over BT Sport would obviously give them the entire BT Sport stable, which is also, you know, it's huge. They've got, as alongside all the football they've got, they've also got the Gallagher Premier League, Premiership Rugby, which is, you know, a big deal. It would probably position the zone as the number one sports broadcaster worldwide. It would likely mean that you can get the zones package in the UK as an over the top service. It would be their entry point into the UK market, which they have been trying to do for a couple of years. Sky and BT together have kind of shut the door on them. Sky will be terrified by this news. This will not sit well with Sky because the zone can match them financially. They'll have a bigger global reach. And when it comes to the next round of Premier League rights and Champions League rights, the zone will be able to to take even more, you'd imagine, and leave Sky with less. And you'll have poor Gary Neville crying into his wine, demanding that people go and take action, promoting violence as he likes to do. You have Jamie Carragher spouting on about bad owners and ignoring the fact that, you know, he takes paychecks from certain people that he probably shouldn't take paychecks from. The zone will be bad for for the game, is what you'll be told, but it won't be. It won't be at all. And we might get to see some really good coverage as well. Hopefully they will reshuffle the deck and not just bring on board everything that comes with BT. Maybe look to bring in a higher standard of commentator, a higher standard of analyst, a higher standard of pundit. This could be game-changing for the Premier League, for football in general. They've got the rights to multiple other leagues already. If you look at, they've got uh, Super League rights, they've got Belgian First Division rights, J1, which is the Japanese League rights. They've got a lot of the uh, Copa Libertadores rights, Major League Soccer, Bundesliga. They've got La Liga in a couple of countries. Now, obviously, La Liga TV is the new service in the UK, which they may eventually try and buy out. But for now, you know, they're bringing together quite a lot. They've got Serie A rights in certain countries. If they could bring everything together and spread those rights even further across all the countries they're going to be in, they really would have a chance to corner the market. Now, you can look at that as a bad thing as well. Monopolies aren't good. But if the standard of coverage that we're getting is better, I don't think any of us will complain. And certainly we won't complain if that cost comes down. Because the cost of having Sky Sports package and a BT Sports package is obnoxious. And that's something that very much needs to change. So the next time you hear somebody spouting on about this is bad or that is bad on Sky Sports or BT, remind them that what is actually bad is the amount of money that those outlets are charging you to watch games. This will be a story that will develop. Um, I'm going to read more about it, immerse myself more in it, find out whatever I can from the different outlets that are reporting, and talk about it more as things progress. And we'll see wh- where we stand come the end of it. 
But this is big breaking news, and this is this is an important story to keep an eye on. Um, right, on to actual football. So, for those that don't know, Twitter really bothers me because it it is populated by morons, absolute morons. So there's a couple of things going on at the minute, debates going on at the minute, and not just on Twitter, but like on things like Instagram and. I've seen videos that have come off TikTok that really just start to grind my gears. So first things first, there's a debate right now about who the better player is, Mo Salah or Neymar. And I don't know how this is a debate because, well, Neymar is the more naturally talented of the two. I don't know how anyone could debate against the case for Salah being the better player. Statistically, Salah is the better player, and it's not particularly close. And when you watch them play, you rarely see Salah have a game where he doesn't impact the game. Whereas with Neymar, he floats through games. He can drift for an entire 90 minutes and produce little or nothing. Now, both of them made the move to their current clubs the same summer, 2017. Both of them were 25 years of age, coming into their primes. One of them cost 36 million, the other one cost 200 million. The expectations on one was that he'd become a very good player, a functional part of the team, and the expectation on the other was that he would become the best player in the world. Because that's what Neymar has been tagged as since he was 17, that someday this guy will be the best player in the world. And as he developed... And he joined Barcelona. He was the one who was going to overtake Lionel Messi. As Messi began to decline, Neymar would ascend. And Neymar would be the best player in the world. That was talked about for years. And when PSG paid £200 for him, that's what they expected. Now... In his four and a bit seasons with Paris Saint-Germain, Neymar has played 119 games. He has never played more than 20 league games for Paris Saint-Germain. There are 38 games in their league season. He has played 20, 17, 15 and 18. This is a team that goes deep in the Cup every single year and deep in the Champions League every single year. He has played 30, 28, 27 and 31 games across all competitions. The most he's ever played in a season, 31. His goal numbers, 28 and 30, 23 and 28, 19 and 27. 17 and 31. So his goal numbers have gone down every single season. Last year, he managed nine league goals in 18 games. 
88 goals in 119 games. Now, I understand he's not just there to be a goal scorer. He's a creative player. He's an inventive player. And that's mainly his role, either from the left or as a number 10. That's generally what Paris Saint-Germain asks of him, is to score goals but also be a creative force in their team. So in his first season, alongside 28 goals, he had 16 assists, 13 in the league, 3 in the Champions League. It's not a bad return at all. That was a very, very promising first season. The only question you would have is, how come he didn't play more? Well, he got injured and he had to go to his sister's birthday party for three weeks. The next season, he also had 13 assists. Eight in the league. Two in the Champions League and three in the French Cup. Played 28 games. So again, you're asking questions about why he's not playing as much. He had 12 assists in 1920. Four in the Champions League that time. Only six in the league. But he only played 15 games. 2021, he has 11 assists. So again, as with his goals, you're seeing those numbers drop. Last season, 17 goals, 11 assists in 31 games. So last season was the most games he's played for PSG with the least goals and the least assists. So that indicates potentially a decline in Neymar. You look at his international numbers, he's always held fairly steady. He's an impressive player, but those numbers, they don't, they don't inspire awe. Like, as I said, this was a guy who was meant to take over from Lionel Messi. This was the guy who was meant to carry the torch. He was meant to be the guy in the way that Messi's been the guy. Kaka was the guy. Zidane, Ronaldo, Maradona. When I say Ronaldo, of course, I mean the real one, not, not the, not the Portuguese version, Cristiano. He was meant to be, Neymar was meant to be the next in line. And he's been in the French league, which is by far the weakest of the top five leagues. Many people now argue it's actually the sixth league with Portugal in at number five. It's a very, straightforward league for PSG to win. They should win that league comfortably every single season. There's no real competition for them. And any competition there is, they can't sustain it. But let's look at him in comparison to Lionel Messi, who's now his teammate, remember. Over the last five years, Messi has scored 45 in 54, 51 in 50, 31 in 44, and 38 in 47 last season. So Messi has by far and away outperformed Neymar over the last four seasons while being in his 30s, allegedly declining. And this is the time when Neymar is meant to be at the peak of his powers and was meant to be the best player in the world. But he hasn't come close to matching what Lionel Messi's done. Now you look at Salah, 
44 and 52, 27 and 52, 23 and 48, and 31 and 51 last year. He had 16 assists his first season at Liverpool. So more goals, more assists, and a lot more games. 18-19, he has 12 assists and 27 goals. 19-20, he has 13 assists and 23 goals. Last season, 31 goals, only 6 assists. So his, his creative numbers did drop last season. But remember... Firmino was awful, Mane was awful. So he created a lot of chances that just didn't get put away. So over the past four years, Salah has outperformed him in terms of goals substantially. Salah has scored 130 goals to Neymar's 88. His creative numbers overall probably around the same. But I would imagine if you look at chance creation, big chance creation, expected assists, I reckon Salah's, I haven't got this to hand, I reckon Salah's will be slightly above where Neymar's are. In a much more difficult league than what Neymar is playing. And the biggest factor is that Salah in the past four years has played 110 games more. Sorry, I'm wrong. He's played 209 games. And Neymar's played 119. So he's played 90 more games in four years. That's a lot of games in four years. That's 22 games a season more per year for four straight years. So with Salah, you get more goals. You get the, the same, if not better, creativity. And you get him on the pitch every single game. With Neymar, you get him on the pitch about... five-eighths of the season. So how can you make a real argument that Neymar is better than Salah when Salah produces every single week, plays every single week, and Neymar just doesn't, and Neymar is also in decline? I don't understand how an argument can be made that Neymar is better than Salah. Statistically, Salah's better. By the eye test, Salah's better. Neymar is more talented. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Neymar may be the most talented player, the most naturally gifted player I've ever seen after Messi and Maradona. But even then, he might have more natural ability than, than Messi. Not Maradona, but maybe Messi. He just doesn't have Messi's mindset or his work rate. The gifts Neymar has are phenomenal. But he just doesn't use them. And it's not like a thing that he's always injured. He gets injured once or twice a season for shorter terms. But he just takes stretches of seasons off. He gets a rest here, a rest there. He goes on holiday here. Sister's birthday party, carnival. Salah's there every single week. And Salah just does it more consistently at a higher level. Salah does it in the Premier League. Neymar does it some of the time in the French League. 
They're not comparable things. There is no argument to be made that Neymar is a better football player than Mo Salah. There's a, a definite argument, a definite case he's more talented. But talent means nothing if you're not putting it on display on a regular basis. This is my argument against Paul Pogba. When people say he's a world-class player, no, he's not. He's a world-class talent. But Paul Pogba has never been consistent enough in his performance to suggest he's a world-class player. Now, Neymar is a world-class player. There's no doubt about that. Neymar is a sensational football player. I know a lot of people don't like watching him. Personally, I love watching him. And it frustrates me that he has wasted his prime by being, well, number one, in France, and number two, so erratic in terms of when is he going to play. This wasn't always the case. When he was at Barca, 41 games, 51 games, 49, 45. When he was with Santos, 48, 60, 47, 47. It's only since he joined PSG he's taken the easy life. And look, he will retire with disgusting wealth because they pay him obscene amounts of money. And maybe he'll be very happy with that. But he's never going to have the legacy he should have had in the game. Again, from the the age of 16, 17, this guy was preordained. By the time he joined Barca, it had been decided this is the next best player in the world. After Messi, it's him. And yet he's got one top three Ballon d'Or finish. And that was the year that Barca won the treble. Messi was World Player of the Year. Suarez should have been second. But because he's Suarez, these things just don't happen for him. The last four years, he hasn't been top three. He's been top... Oh, sorry. sorry. I, I tell a lie. He's been top three twice. 2017, he was voted third. Which was a little bit obscene. But he's never won it. He's never been top two. He's never come close to actually winning it. He had 600 votes less than Cristiano out of whatever number there is. I think it's 2,000. He got 600 votes less than Cristiano. 300 votes less than Messi in 17. In 2015, when they did it by percentage, he got 7.86% of the vote. Messi won it with 41%. Now, look, the Ballon d'Or is a popularity contest, and if it was actually awarded to who the best player is, Lionel Messi would have won it every single year since 2009. That's just how it should be. Messi should have won it pretty much every single year. But it is notable that only one season... Out of the last, as far back as 2007, only one season in that time was Lionel Messi not in the top three. 
and only two seasons was he not in the top two. And the season he wasn't in the top three was a joke. Modric won it, and I didn't really mind that, it was fine. Cristiano was second. Messi was far better than him that season. And Griezmann was third, and again, Messi was better than him. Neymar has never come close to winning. And now, look, neither has Salah, but Salah was, has never been expected to win it. Salah was never preordained as this next great thing. Salah had to go the hard way around becoming a great player. You know, Salah left Egypt, went to Switzerland, joined Chelsea, didn't work, went on loan to Fiorentina, on loan to Roma, permanent move to Roma, that one in, one really good season there. Then he joined Liverpool and he's been a force of nature ever since. Neymar's had a much easier route. Santos, Barca, PSG. There's never been any doubts about his career. His name has carried him quite often. But when you talk about who's the better football player, I'm sorry, there's just no argument in Neymar's favour. None at all. And this brings me to the second thing that bugs me about social media. Is this idea that, you know, the current names in the game are somehow better than the legends of the past. And that if you argue in favour of those legends of the past, that you're a nostalgia merchant. That the game is better now than it's ever been, which just isn't true. The quality of football is not nearly as good. The quality of footballer is not nearly as good. Has the game become quicker? Absolutely. Has it become more technical? No. No, it hasn't. It hasn't at all. It's become less tactical. The rules of the game have been skewed massively to favour attackers. Made it much easier to score goals. The offside rule has been played about with seven or eight different times. And it's different this year than it was last year. It was different last year than the year before. And none of the changes they've made to the rules of the game have actually improved the game. But I've seen people disparage the likes of Baresi. He couldn't play today. He's too small. As if the game is somehow more physical now than it was back then. Like, think about football in the 80s and 90s. Think about how many agricultural teams there were who would just bombard long balls and crosses into the box of the target man. Franco Baresi thrived in that era. But think of what we see now in terms of Ball-playing defenders. Brazy was a ball player in the 80s. This idea that ball-playing defenders are the new thing. Brazy and Hansen were carrying the ball out of defence in the 80s. This idea that they wouldn't be able to deal with Lukaku. Have any of you children seen George Weah? Have you seen George Weah, who had Lukaku's power, more pace, far better control, more talent? Oh, they couldn't cope with Neymar. Allow me to introduce you to Thierry Henry. 
Let me show you video of Il Phenomeno. They couldn't deal with someone like Harry Kane. Boys and girls, this is Marco van Basten. Only van Dijk, and I love van Dijk. I think he is by far the best defender in the world. But the idea that he's the best defender ever insults me, insults anybody who watched the greats of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. The idea that Sergio Ramos would even be in the conversation with the greats of the 90s and 2000s is so far out of line, I don't even know where to start with it. But only Van Dijk can deal with this striker, that striker. Go and Google Alessandro Nesta. Stick his name into YouTube and just sit still for half an hour and watch some videos. I'm so tired of the disrespect of the legends of the game who paved the way for where the game is now. You've all seen that stupid post that goes around that calls Graham Sunes a dusty baller, whatever that is. No kid grows up wanting to be Graham Sunes. That's just not true. Because a generation did. And they included people like Roy Keane, who's the best midfield player the Premier League era has seen. When Graham Sunes and Roy Keane sit in a Sky studio and they talk about Paul Pogba, they talk about Paul Pogba having been world-class midfielders themselves, having been the best in their position in the world for spells, having captained great teams, having played with great players, having done things on the pitch Paul Pogba doesn't even consider. The Ramos one is the one that always annoys me the most. Oh, he's one of the greatest defenders of all time. Based on what? Oh, well, he's won loads. Right, so because his teammates won a lot, he's therefore the greatest defender of all time. If he was held to the same standard, if defenders of today were held to the same standard of defenders of the 90s and 2000s, he would have spent most of his time sitting on a bench or playing in a mid-table team. The closest comparison stylistically that I can think to him is a Lillian Turan, right back who moves centrally. Lillian Turan was a flawless defender. Flawless. Great on the ball. Powerful going forward. Scored some big goals in his career. And go look them up. But as a defender, Incredible, strong, perfect 1v1, great in the air, really quick, read the game brilliantly, and could organise at the same time. Ramos is a good leader, there's no doubt. Ramos is the type of guy that would inspire you to want to play well. But if you stand and watch Ramos play, you'll wonder, why is he screaming at me when he's not doing his job? And that's a trait of the modern captain. 
Jordan Henderson's another one like this. Screams at far better players to do their jobs while not doing his own. Tells much better players who and where they should pass the ball to. And you see the bemused look on some of his teammates' faces. Thiago's the prime example. Henderson screams at him. Thiago just looks at him and says, shut up. I'm not listening to you because you don't know what you're talking about. If Ramos tried what he does now in the 90s with the defenders that played then, they'd have laughed in his face. And when people talk about Cannavaro couldn't play now, Baresi couldn't play now, who are you trying to kid? The game is not more of a long ball game now than it was 20, 30 years ago. There aren't as many big bully strikers. Yes, there's Erling Haaland, a once-off freak. How many defenders of the current game can actually deal with him? Because I would take Alessandro Nesta having a better chance at him than anybody in the current game, and I include Van Dijk in that. I just don't understand why this modern era of football fans, who generally you find them on Twitter, they're about 15 years of age, and they talk about players that they never saw play, and they disrespect them and dismiss them, all while, you know, having Harry Maguire as their profile picture, or Jesse Lingard or somebody. You just wonder, like, what planet do you live on? And I saw this video by a guy who claims to be a content creator, whatever that is. And it was six players who would struggle in the modern game. And I watched it and I thought, this this kid never saw any of these players play. Doesn't understand how the game was played. Seems to think we currently play an entirely different sport than they did in the 90s and 2000s. And basically just doesn't understand football one bit. So the first name he had was Filippo Inzaghi. Oh, he was just a poacher. Fair enough. But what about his off-ball work? What about the runs he used to make in the channels to draw defenders to enable strike partners like, oh, I don't know, Andrei Shevchenko to flourish? What about his pressing off the ball? What about the defensive work he put in? Because when I see see Filippo Inzaghi, I think he could be Jamie Vardy in the modern game. But with better natural instincts. Now, Vardy might have a better goals-to-game ratio than Inzaghi did, but Inzaghi was playing week in and week out against very good defensive teams in Serie A, whereas Vardy plays week in, week out against mediocre and below defences in the Premier League. There's no doubt to me that Inzaghi could play in the modern game. Either as that lone pressing forward in a counter-attacking team or as part of a partnership. Either with a creative player just off him. Or that big target man that he could work off of. There's no doubt to me 
that Inzaghi could play in today's game and be a great success, play for a top team? No question. The next one he named was Deco. And his argument was, well, number 10s like Deco don't really exist anymore. Okay. Not necessarily entirely true, but, but fair. But Deco could also play as a number 8. And in fact, when he played for Barcelona, he played as a number 8. When he played for Chelsea, he played as a number 8. And for spells at Porto, he was also a number 8. You're telling me Deco couldn't play in the modern era as an 8 when the likes of Luka Modric plays as an 8. Deco was a guy who Andreas Iniesta, arguably the best midfielder the game's had in the last 20 years, Deco was a guy that Iniesta looked up to. Deco was a guy that Iniesta sat behind for some time at Barcelona as a number eight. You see Joe Matinho, who's 34, 35 now, still doing his bits in the Premier League with great ease. Rarely breaks a sweat. And you're telling me Deco, in his prime, couldn't play in the modern game? Where... The rules dictate that any small contact at all, he can just fall over and win a free kick. You're telling me a guy with that level of intelligence, that level of passing vision and ability, wouldn't excel in the modern game. Is this, it's such a very strange view to take. And again, it tells me you didn't see Deco play. You didn't see Inzaghi, you didn't see him. The next one is the worst of the lot. Luis Figo. One of the greatest players of all time. Oh, but traditional wingers like him don't exist anymore. Right, first things first, Luis Figo isn't, wasn't a traditional winger at all. Luis Figo was a playmaker who just happened to play wide. Yes, he would beat men with incredible ease. And this idiot said he wasn't someone who could just go by people. Uh, Figo was one of the greatest dribblers the game's ever seen. Went by people with ease. Put the ball through the legs, went round them, put it back through the legs and stood and laughed at them. Luis Figo on the ball, one of the best players we've ever seen as a dribbler, as a passer, as a creator. His crossing, his set pieces, all absolutely sensational. Could score a goal as well. Luis Figo in the modern game would be a top three player. If you get prime Luis Figo, I'm talking those last couple of years at Barca and the first three, four years at Real. You get that Luis Figo in this modern era of football, he's a top three player in the world. He can play as a 10, he could play off the left as an inverted winger, it would have been a breeze for him, or he could play as a number eight because he had the size, the physicality passing range, the work rate. If you think Kevin De Bruyne is good, Luis Figo is better. Luis Figo was as good a passer as De Bruyne, a better dribbler than De Bruyne, a harder worker than De Bruyne. Luis Figo would be one of the best players in the world right now and would walk into any team 
that he saw fit to play for. Claude McAlealy was up next. And this one made me laugh. So he started off by overrating what McAlealy was in his prime, saying he was the best defensive midfielder in the world, which he, he just never was. He was very, very good, don't get me wrong. But he was never the best defensive midfielder in the world. The McAlealy role thing is a big old myth. Those type of players had existed for years before he came along. But what's great about it is he'd been a pro for about 10, 11 years before any of these people ever even heard of him. He'd been at Nantes for years, Marseille, Celta Vigo. Then he lands at Real, starts to get his his due, and then he ends up with Chelsea and then finishes off at PSG. But the idea that Claude McAlealy couldn't play today, and the guy was like, oh, he's just a tackler who won it back and passed at five yards. It's just not true. Claude McAlealy was a very good passer of the ball. Really good use. Good passing range. Not great. Not, not slinging 60-yard crossfield passes. But McAlealy could break the lines with a pass. He could whip it wide to his fullbacks when needed. Claude McAlealy, you overrated him in what you said, and then you underrated his actual ability. And let's talk about his abilities as a defensive midfielder. His positioning was flawless. His timing of the tackle was flawless. Despite only being 5'9", he was incredibly hard to knock off the ball. He had great, great core strength. Claude McAlealy in today's game is Fabinho. Who's pretty good, you know? Claude McAlealy in today's game walks into, if we look at the Premier League, he's better than Rodri. He's about Fabinho's level. So you put him in the City team. I think you put him in the Chelsea team over Jorginho next to Kante. And that those two together would be... And for people that think Kante and McAlealy are the same type of player, you're, you're completely wrong. You're completely wrong. McAlealy was a sitting, holding midfielder. Kante's a box-to-box destroyer. Together, they would have been a nightmare to play against. So you could put him in the Chelsea team. He'd walk into the Manchester United team. He'd walk into the Spurs team. I don't know if you'd put him in the Leicester team because you've got Ndidi, who's more that destroyer type, and that's kind of what Leicester need. But he's a better defensive midfielder than Ndidi. I just don't know that him and Thielemans is the ideal kind of partnership. McAlealy plays for pretty much any team in the world right now. At his prime, he's better than the current Busquets. He doesn't have Busquets' flair on the ball in terms of his ability to turn. You know, those those little moments where you see Busquets just be press-resistant and your jaw kind of drops a little bit. That little roll of the ball under his studs, flick it through the legs and move, that little turn he does and sends the defender for a newspaper or the, the presser for a newspaper. He doesn't have that. But he had Busquets' positioning, his timing of things, his intelligence, his reading of the game. He wouldn't be Busquets on the ball, but defensively he was he was as good as Busquets. 
So the idea that Makaleli couldn't play today is a laugh. Is is just a joke. It's a joke. The next one he named. Now this guy isn't a, wasn't a great player. So I'm not really sure what now. Inzaghi wasn't a great player either. Inzaghi was a very good player. I would say this guy was a good player who played in great teams and had an incredible career. But Gary Neville. See, Gary Neville would struggle today. Now, Manchester United currently employ Aaron Wan-Bissaka at fullback and paid £50 for the honour of doing so. Gary Neville was a better defender than Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Not as good 1v1, doesn't have that straight line speed, but a far more intelligent defender. Read the game better, much better positioning. Covered his centre-backs really well. Very, very aggressive player. Knew how to leave an equaliser on somebody. Or a reducer, as he used to like to call it. Could get tight and mark 1v1, but knew when to drop off. Gary Neville didn't have a lot of the physical abilities that Juan Basaka had. Or other modern fullbacks have. But Gary Neville's brain as a player, was very high level. Gary Neville's reading of the game was exceptional. You'll struggle. If you go back through Gary Neville's career, You'll st- other than like the, the late stages when his pace had gone and he was just kind of clinging on because Ferguson wanted him around the place. But if you look at Gary Neville from probably... I'd say about 97 through to 09. No, 08 probably. 09 there was a bit of a dip. 08 when the United won that that Champions League and Premier League double. If you look at Gary Neville in that spell, you can probably count the number of wingers who absolutely rinsed him on one hand. You can count the big errors that he would have made on two hands across a decade or more. He was incredibly consistent. Rarely was he 8 out of 10, but he was rarely below a 7 out of 10. Very, very rarely below a 7 out of 10. Gary Neville was a good player who great players trusted. He was a good player who could lead great players. And he was decent going forward. He didn't have, you know, any kind of dribbling ability, but he would overlap constantly and he was a very good crosser of the ball, a very accurate crosser of the ball. To suggest he couldn't play in today's game, I don't know what game you're watching. Gary Neville was better going forward than Reese James. Didn't have James's pace and power. But a better passer of the ball and a better crosser. He wasn't Trent. Not by any means. But Gary Neville was a very good player. Who did his job at an exceptionally good level. For many, many years. To suggest that a 19 year pro. Who was part of. The greatest era of domination we've seen from one club since Liverpool in the 70s and 80s to suggest he couldn't play now a mere 10 years after he retired again I don't know what you're talking about 
Maybe you call it the tail end of his career, and that's what you base it on. But you clearly didn't see the guy at his best to disrespect him like that. And I'm not a fan of Gary Neville at all. I wasn't a fan as a player. Don't like him as a pundit. But I can absolutely say that you would have wanted Gary Neville in your team. Without question, you would have wanted him in your team. Great players wanted him next to them. Because they could rely on him. And when I see fullbacks today, like I see Luke Shaw. And I see him been fawned over. Luke Shaw's not better than Gary Neville was. But Luke Shaw's a similar type of player to Neville. Very good defensively. Shaw's better at carrying the ball than Neville. Neville was a better crosser of the ball. I would give Neville a slight edge defensively because I think he was a better team defender. And Neville, despite only being about 5'10", could play centre-back in a two in the Premier League. No problem. I don't think Shaw could, despite being a bit taller and obviously heavier. But give Gary Neville his due. There's no doubt he could play right now in the Premier League for a top team. No question at all. Aspi Laqueta is probably the closest thing to Gary Neville in the league. Now, he's he's a little bit past his best, obviously, but has anyone doubted him at any point up until recently when his pace has gone a little bit? It's just nonsense. And then there's the last one, and we're going to move on after this because I've probably bored you to tears, but Carlos Puyol. How you could suggest that Carlos Puyol couldn't play today and be great. The guy only retired seven years ago. If he played today, number one, he would be the best captain in modern football. Number two, he would be a top three defender in the game. Marquinhos is a top three defender right now. Has been for a couple of years. He's not as good a defender as Puyol was. Very similar style. Probably a little bit quicker. Not as powerful, not as dominant, not as physical. But the idea that these guys couldn't play, it's... I don't know what game you watch. Because you're not watching the same game as me. And you certainly didn't see these players play in their primes. Now maybe you caught the tail end of some of their careers. And maybe you've watched yourself a little bit of YouTube. But if you'd seen these guys play, and I was lucky enough to see pretty much all of them start to finish in their careers, you wouldn't even dream of suggesting that they couldn't play in today's game. Because you'd look like an idiot. Because you are an idiot. Luis Figo would be a top three player in the world. Carlos Puyol would be a top three centre-back in the world. Claude McAuley would be a top three holding midfielder in the world. Gary Neville would be a good player as he was and would play for most clubs. And Inzaghi would probably be more highly regarded now than he was then. Because of how he played the game. And Deco would be running games for whoever he wanted to run them for. 
Like, we've seen Thiago Alcantara, Tony Cruz, Luka Modric. He could be any of those if he wanted. He had he had the ability to be that sitting playmaker like a Thiago, like a Cruz, or that more advanced, still a number eight, but a little bit more advanced, in between the lines, Luka Modric type. And to suggest otherwise just doesn't doesn't bode well for you. It just tells me that you didn't watch them play. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll go very quickly through the good, the bad, and the ugly of this Premier League weekend. See you in a minute. Right, folks, welcome back. So, uh, new little segment I want to trial here. The good, the bad, and the ugly of the Premier League weekend we've just witnessed. So, I'm going to pick one thing for each for now and maybe expand it as we move forward. But start off with the good. And the good is Brentford. The one thing that stands out to me better than anything else we saw this weekend is Brentford. A newly promoted team who've come into the division with a clear identity, an idea of who they are and what they want to be, a way of playing and a bravery to how they play. They've stuck to their principles. They've remained true to what got them up. And they've made a tremendous start to the season. And the win over Wolves was probably their best performance so far. Which is natural. As the players get more used to the Premier League, become more adjusted to the quality of player they're playing against. As Ivan Tony begins to come out of his shell a bit more. I think we'll see more and more of this from Brentford. But two wins, two draws and one defeat with five goals scored and two conceded after five games, eight points and a ninth place sit in the Premier League right now. That's the good of what we've just seen. That's the best that we've seen in terms of we expect Liverpool and Chelsea and City and, and these teams to be great. We don't expect newly promoted teams to come in and immediately set out their way of playing and not be drawn into becoming more defensive or relying on the long ball or sitting in and trying to hit teams in the counter-attack. That's not what Brentford do. It's not what got them to the Premier League. They stuck to what got them to the Premier League. And I think we should all we should all appreciate what they're doing and how they're doing it. The bad is Norwich. And this is going to sound contradictory based on what I've said about Brentford. But this is Brentford's first time in the Premier League. So they're going to come up and they're going to try and stay in the Premier League being themselves. And we don't know yet if it will work or not. This is not Norwich's first time in the Premier League. This is not this group of players' first time in the Premier League. This is not Daniel Farker's first time of being in the Premier League. And the last time they were in the Premier League was 1920. They came up, they stayed true to themselves, and everybody admired them. 
They won five games all season. They conceded 75 goals. And they went down with 21 points, which is 13 less than anyone else in the league. It didn't work. And it doesn't appear like lessons were learned in that time in the Premier League. I think they had a really good summer. I give them massive credit for what they did in the transfer window. But I don't think they've learned any lessons from the last time they were up. I think they're being too naive. Now, they've had a difficult start. It must be said they've had a really difficult start to the season. Liverpool, City, Leicester, Arsenal. But Watford was the game you were looking at. At home, newly promoted team just like themselves. A team that they finished above last year in the Championship. You're thinking that's the place to get your first win. They didn't get it. Next up, they've got Everton away, Burnley away, high-flying Brighton, Chelsea. That takes them through to the last game in in October, which is Leeds. It's now hard to see where they start picking up wins. You can see them getting a point against Burnley, maybe get a point against Brighton. They could beat Brighton at home, of course they could, but you know you're looking at it right now. They're bottom of the league, Brighton are top four. You're trying to weigh up what's the what's the likelihood. I would like to see Norwich be a little bit more adaptable to the opposition they're playing against. Not just set out their stall. It was really, really impressive to see them do it last time. To Just be true to those principles. And look, maybe they don't mind getting relegated again. Maybe they're very happy to be that 21st Premier League team who spends every second season in the championship gets promoted straight back up. Maybe they're happy for that. And I suppose, in a way, it means that every game matters for them. Because one season they're battling relegation, the next they're challenging for promotion. And there's always a little bit of excitement. There's a journey there. And maybe that's fine. Maybe that's what their fans want. But maybe they'd like a bit of stability. Maybe they'd like a boring mid-table season. Now, I'm not saying Farka needs to turn into Tony Pulis overnight. But a little bit more nous, a little bit less naivety, is what I'd like to see. The ugly from this weekend in the Premier League is refereeing decisions. Now, Dale Johnson, as he does did his um, his VAR thread for the weekend. These are always excellent. If you don't follow Dale, it's at Dale Johnson ESPN on Twitter. He's excellent. And these threads are, are really, really good. So, there were a number of very controversial decisions this weekend. Some good, some bad, some silly. So the first one he reviews is the Aaron Ramsdale uh, Mattia Vidra penalty, which was given and then overturned, and rightly so, Ramsdale clearly got the ball. It was visible in real time that Ramsdale got the ball, and why the referee felt the need to give it, I don't know. The Manchester City Southampton game. So apparently 
Kyle Walker's challenge on the ball is seen as a legitimate a, a legitimate cha- a, attempt to win the ball. He doesn't get anywhere near it, but it is seen as a legitimate attempt to give to, to win the ball. So John Moss, who was the referee, um, he sent Walker off. And according to Dale, by the rules, that's 100% the wrong decision, and that had to go to review. However, Moss actually sent Walker off for pushing Adam Armstrong, which didn't actually happen. So Moss didn't see what happened. He, He thought he saw a push, so he sent Walker off for that and gave the penalty. Then he reviewed it. And realised there was no push. And yet somehow didn't award the penalty for the foul that actually took place. So I can understand the overturning of the red card. As Dale has laid it it out there. Because it's seen as a legitimate attempt to get the ball. Even though he gets nowhere near it. You can't send him off because of the double jeopardy rule. So that's fine. So you've gotten that part. So you've seen it wrong. You've sent the player off incorrectly and you've awarded a penalty. All you need to do is just overturn the red card. Give the penalty, overturn the red card. Instead, John Moss does both. Uh, Overturns both. Overturns the red card and overturns the penalty. Absolutely shocking officiating from John Moss. Not unexpected. He has lots and lots of history with this. Um, but a shocker. Then we move on to Manchester United and West Ham. So there's a lot of controversial, and I missed one of these yesterday, I completely forgot about it. The Wan Bissaka foul on Suchek, which somehow Martin Atkinson viewed and thought that's a free kick to Manchester United, despite Wan Bissaka absolutely Sliding through, sliding through Suchek in the box. This is a blatant penalty. It couldn't be more obvious. And Atkinson gives it as a free kick to United. It's rash. He's coming in at an angle where he can't win the ball. He comes through the back of Suchek and somehow it's a free out. How VAR doesn't look at this and change the decision, I don't know. If you look at Dale's account again, there is a a still shot of the moment of contact. Wan-Bissaka doesn't get near the ball and goes clean through Suchek. One foot and the sliding leg. He's completely off the ground in this picture as well. Lepping into a tackle. And somehow it's not given as a penalty. So there's that one. Then there is the Vladimir Sufal on Cristiano. Where Sufal kind of stands him squared. And Cristiano shifts the ball to his left. And kind of runs into Sufal. He does sort of initiate the contact himself. It's not a natural movement from Cristiano. The way he goes into Sufal. So maybe that's the reason. But I could see that one be given, being given as a penalty. 
I really could see that one being given as a penalty many times over. The other one, which is the Zuma on Cristiano one, that's a dive. That's a blatant dive. Before, again, there's, there's pictures on Dale's account. Before there's any contact, Cristiano is falling over. He drags his right foot in the ground and falls over Zuma's leg. He is, I would say his knees are less than a foot from the ground, almost parallel, his, his, his shins are almost parallel to the ground before there's any contact. He is clearly on his way down. He dragged his back foot, he dropped his legs, he initiated the contact, it's not a penalty, and that one was fine. The handball was obviously fine. There's no question there. Now, the next one then is Brighton versus Leicester. The Yannick Vestergaard handball. It's a nonsense call. Neil Mope is fouling him. It should have been given a foul against Mope and a free out for Leicester. But yet, somehow it wasn't. There's also the Joe Willock on Dan James incident on Friday night Leeds versus Newcastle. I didn't think it was I didn't think it was a penalty personally. Personally I didn't think it was. I just thought they came together in the box and that's fine. Um but the big ones the big ones that really stand out are the the Vestigard Mopay incident, the Wan Bissaka Suchek incident which is just incredible, and that Walker incident. So the ugly of this weekend is the officiating, the referees and the VAR. Just get your act together. This isn't hard. This isn't hard. You've got time. You've got all the camera angles. You can watch as many replays as you can. Get your acts together. This can't go on much longer. It really can't go on much longer. You've got to do better than that. Um, we'll finish up with a bit of news and a bit of gossip. So, big news in the championship. Obviously, Nottingham Forest sacked Chris Hewton, and they have appointed Steve Cooper, who did an excellent job with Swansea for two seasons, got them into the playoffs both times. And when you look at where Swansea are now, it shows the caliber of job that Cooper was doing. Not to be at all disparaging of Russell Martin. I hope he turns things around. But it's very, very clear that Cooper was doing great work there. Oftentimes with multiple loanees and trying to craft a squad, a team quickly with a lot of loan players is a, a big challenge. So Cooper did really well there. I'm surprised he's taken this job because I think he could have gotten a Premier League job if he held out. I, I think he could have gotten a Newcastle job if he held out because I think that one's going to come up soon. But for Forrest, this is a great appointment because they're a train wreck. On and off the field, they are an absolute train wreck. They are nailed to the bottom of the championship right now. Four points from eight games, one win, one draw, six defeats. Um, a horrendous start under Chris Hewton. And I feel bad for Chris Hewton because I, I genuinely thought he could turn things around then and there and, and maybe get them promoted as he has in the past with Newcastle, Norwich and Brighton. But it wasn't to be. They've got an absurd transfer policy, an owner who interferes too often, a director of football who doesn't necessarily seem to care all that much about Norwich. 
uh, and maybe that's on the mandate of the owner. Not, uh, Nottingham Forest, I mean, they're Brian Clough's club, aren't they? They're, they're, they're a club that have won multiple European Cups. They've won a, uh, an English Football League. They've won League Cups. They're a club with a lot of pride and some great history. And to see them struggle the way they are and the way they have for, I mean, it's 99 was the last time we saw them in the Premiership. 99. We haven't seen them in the top league in 22 years now. And, you know, they spent three years in League One, but other than that, it's mostly been the championship for that period of time. And they're not even making the playoffs. The last time they made the playoffs was 2011. For 10 straight years without making the playoffs. That's unacceptable. Yes, they've got no divine right to be in the Premier League, but they should be at least competing at the top of the championship. And to see them go through what they've gone through with multiple, you know, bad ownership situations, it's very, very tough to take. So I really hope Steve Cooper can turn, turn things around there. I think it'd be great to see Forrest back in the Premier League. Uh, the city ground is, is a, it's a great little stadium. It's a quirky little stadium with that, you know, that two level, split level roof that it's got. I've always liked Forest. I've always had a, a soft spot for Forest. And the hardest thing about looking at them is when you think of them, you think of Brian Clough. You think of Brian Clough, you think of two things. You think Nottingham Forest and Derby County. And you think about Derby County, you look at their situation now and it's even worse than Forest. Somehow it's even worse than Forest. They are in administration. They are going to be deducted 12 points. When they are deducted 12 points, they will go from 10 points from their first uh, eight games, two wins, four draws, and only two defeats, to minus two points. They also face another another deduction of nine points because their accounts are going to be, um, their accounts have been deemed to violate the rules governing how you report financially upon yourself. And they are going to go to minus 11. There's a possibility that that's not the end of it either because there are other years where they pricked about with their accounts and did things they shouldn't have done. Their their way of doing player amorti- uh, amortization is different apparently to every other club in the country. So um, Derby are in big trouble. They are desperately in need of a new owner. Mel Morris has decided he can no longer he can no longer run the club, um, and that that's his decision. But he is largely to blame for the hole they find themselves in. This is a club with an incredibly good academy who are going to end up selling off all of their best young players for peanuts just to survive. It's really, really hard to see a club like Derby go through this the same way with Forrest. But it's worse for Derby because Derby, there, there is a slight chance that they end up going out of business. Now, I don't think it's a big chance. I don't think it will happen. But it is a possibility. It really is a possibility. Now, Mel Morris has come out and blamed COVID, and that's nonsense because COVID affected every club. didn't just affect you. And if things were fair, 
Derby would have been relegated last year. They would have had points deducted last season. They would have gone down and Whipham would have stayed up. But again, you know, like Derby, they're just a club I have a soft spot for. Um, one of my stepfather's brothers, he's a Derby fan. Um, there's obviously the Brian Clough angle. Francis Lee played there. I, I love watching footage of Francis Lee. Um, it's just, it's very hard to see great clubs like Derby and Forest go through this type of thing. And they've been out of the Premiership, the Premier, I call it the Premiership twice now today. They've been out of the Premier League since uh, 08. They had that one season uh, where they broke some records for being dreadful. Um, and they've been in the Championship ever since. They've had a couple of playoff berths. Four. Four playoff berths. Uh, they spent a lot of money because they chased the Premier League dream. They went all in the year Lampard was there and it went to... It turned into a mess after he left. Not because of Frank leaving, but because of the financial situation of the club. And it, it just... It looks it looks bad. If you are a an athletic subscriber, there's some really good work uh, I think Ryan Conway is the name of the, the guy who covers Derby on there. There's a really, really good book called Pride, and I've, I'm reading it at the moment, and it's about Derby in recent years and kind of how they got here. Um, and I think it is well worth your while giving it a read. It is – who wrote it? Let me just get the name of the author up so I can give them. The inside story, it's called Pride, the inside story of Derby County in the 21st century. And Ryan Hills is the, the guy that wrote it. It's, it's really, really good. So if you've got 15 quid to spare, it's on Amazon. It's in, it's only available in hardback, but I prefer uh, paperback, but it is what it is. This book is well worth your while giving a read to. So check that one out, but it'll give you a kind of a, an eye opener into what's gone on. At Derby. And I mean, there's a, there's a ton of stuff out there you can read about Forrest as well. Just follow Daniel Taylor and read his stuff on the Athletic. Uh, it, the two circuses going on at those two clubs who, you know, have been, have been institutions for years. And, um, now I think both clubs belong in institutions, but not of the same type. Uh, I'm going to finish up with the gossip and get out of here for today. It's been, it's been a long one so far. Uh, Manchester United have identified Frank Kessie as a possible replacement for Paul Pogba. Frank Kessie's a very, very good player and would be an improvement on Paul Pogba, would also fit better into the Manchester United team than Paul Pogba. Tangai Endembele is another midfielder on United's radar. I was going to put that one in the bin. Uh, Pogba's future remains uncertain, but Juventus are not planning to bring him back to Turin. Uh, Probably because they're in they're in a bad state financially, they probably can't afford to go and give Pogba a, a massive contract. Uh, Denmark defender Chris Andreas Christensen is ready to sign a new contract at Chelsea for about 120 grand a week. Um, yeah, I I can see it. He he's played really well so far this season. I'd like to see him move away and go somewhere. He will be first choice no matter what. But it, it is what it is. Uh, Juventus and Atletico Madrid are keeping tabs on Bakayo Saka. Of course they are. Real Madrid are planning a move for Paris Saint-Germain defender Marquinhos with the Brazilian under contract until 2024. Um, Marquinhos and Militao would be a 
pretty good pairing, actually. So yeah, I could see, I could see why they would want him. Leeds remain interested in Club Bruges winger Noah Lang. Are they interested though? Were they interested because they were linked with him all summer and never went for him? So I, I don't know. And he would have been a lot cheaper than Dan James. Fiorentina are trying to tie down Dusan Vlahovic to a new deal after the 28-year-old was linked to the move to Tottenham in the summer. Uh, I assume that this is some variation of typo because Vlahovic is 21. He is not 28 years of age. Uh, English midfielder Danny Drinkwater admits his Chelsea career has been a shambles after he made his debut for Reading in his fourth loan spell. Uh, Chelsea paying 90% of his wages um, for him to play for somebody else. I think it's been a shambles for everybody involved. Is he only 28 years old? He can't only be 28. He's 31. Who is typing these things up, BBC? Um, Inter Milan are keen to offload Alexis Sanchez with Real Betis and Sevilla having expressed an interest in the player. Um, yeah, I mean, I could see him doing well in Spain, for sure. Uh, he's been told he can leave on a free. Sevilla already have Papu Gomez. So they probably won't want him. They also have Ocampos. So they're set on the left side of their attack. Betis would be an interesting one. Same city, obviously. And he could be a, he would be a hero there. If he lands at Betis, he would be a hero. Uh, Roma are interested in Manchester United and Portugal right back Diogo de Lotz. Um, possibly. Did Mourinho sign him for United? I think he did, didn't he? So it is possible. He did indeed. It is possible that he would want him at Roma. Um, Yves Basuma said it was not time to leave Brighton in the summer, but that it is his dream to play in the Champions League. Uh, he's got one more season and he's, he's gone. He, he will get a move next summer. Former Arsenal defender Per Mertesacker, who is now head of the academy, says the club are in a massive transition and hopes that Mikel Arteta gets the time that he needs to improve the London side's fortune. Um, yeah, no, not so much. Not so much. It, it, pressure is what Arteta needs because if he gets comfortable, things go backwards. That's what's happened since he's been there. Uh, that is us for today. We will leave it at that. Thank you, as always, for listening to my inane ramblings. Thank you to Guy Drinkle, and I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.